You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Welcome, grab a seat. How y'all doing? Have you embraced uh, the rain? You guys all right with it? I went out for a walk the other day, and it was like, I was just mad at first, and then I just went, you know what? I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to die. It's going to rain. It's a season that happens every year, and every year I just go through this like internal struggle of like, what does it mean to be an Oregonian and embrace the rain? Well, we're going to do it. Uh, more importantly, we're going to look at God's Word this morning. And we're going to be in um, First Peter, and, and it has finally, I think, it took a couple sermons and a, a lot of study, but it's like kind of now gripping me, and I'm like starting to kind of unlock it. And so this morning... Um, we're going to jump into chapter two. So I think it's taken us four sermons to get to chapter two, but don't worry. Like we're not going to set the same track record. I think we've got 10 sermons or, or 12 uh, allotted for this. So uh, the, I think it's the next chapter or the next chunk, the next sermon, we're going to cover a lot of territory in, but we're, we're jumping into to, to chapter two. And again, Peter, just to ground ourselves, he's writing this letter to a group of Jesus followers, like freshly minted in some ways, like some of them had just made their confessions to follow Jesus. And because of that, they were now suffering um, oppression and persecution, at least marginalization. And um, the places that he's writing to would be like, I think modern day Turkey, but it's in that day kind of called um, ancient Asia Minor. And think of the letters that like Paul wrote. So a lot of those same churches are in that area. And these 10 verses that we're going to look at this morning, they really represent a, a transition in, in Peter's thoughts. And if we look to what we kind of unpacked in chapter one, we see Peter laying out this really like brilliant theology, very, very Christ-centered theology, very gospel-centered theology. And we see a beautiful doxology where he calls his people to, to praise Jesus for who he is. And then he begins to inform to the people he's writing to, like, who are they and what's their experience and what, is it, what does it look like to, to walk this very challenging road of becoming a, a follower of Jesus in a, in a space that, that was foreign and, and not, it not, not even that it wasn't acceptable yet, but it just didn't make sense to the people around them and they're trying to make sense altogether and often that led to them being marginalized and persecuted. So the passage um, really and all of Peter so far has been filled with all of this beautiful Old Testament imagery and allusions and, and even in some case quotations. Matt brought some of that out and did a really good job last week kind of looking up and uh, wrapping up chapter, chapter one and when we had to turn to that because that's where Peter turns. And so in order to grasp what Peter is teaching us here and why it matters to us today, because we have to understand that the cultural context in which Peter is writing this letter is so far removed from, from our experience and, and what is our reality. And so we've got to do a, a lot of work and, and really ground this letter in Peter's intentions I think it's easy to do this, and I think we all do it, and we have to extract these pieces from ourselves, but it's easy to, I think, just with any piece of scripture, kind of treat it like a, like a plinko board, you know, 
and we, we drop it at the top, and then it, it's bouncing off of like our experiences and who we are and our cultural perspectives and biases, and then we end up with like a different message than like Peter's intention. And so um, what we want to do is carve a big plinko pathway down it, which is the gospel, right? The entirety of scripture is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And so if that's Leviticus, or if that's First Peter, it's all gospel, and and so we don't we don't want to read it and interpret it. Like I, I can do this, I, especially First Peter. You can be so it's so easy, um, and we have to recognize as the American church how we read First Peter. Um, all too often is not how his readers would have read it. Just in that we come from a culture where Christianity is that has been historically at the front and center of. Um, the, the country that we live in. And so we don't read it rightly. Um, we're never going to have the same experiences as Peter's readers, but we want to really kind of try to understand that perspective and not our own. And so it takes some work to do that. So we're going to um, spend the first kind of chunk of our time together just getting reoriented to like the big picture of the letter, reminding ourselves of Peter's purpose and his audience what is he trying to accomplish? And then we're going to look briefly at some of these Old Testament allusions that Peter's been weaving through the first chapter and then follow them to where they kind of culminate in today's text. So if you have a Bible, once again, grab it, open it up to First Peter. We're going to be in chapter two. Let me pray once again for our time together, and then we're going to dig in. Father, we thank you that as a people formed through the cross and the resurrection, uh, a, a new people, even as we look at Peter's words today, that once we were not a people. That's weird because we've always been people and persons, but he's forming something in his audience there to say that once you were not a people, but now you are. And it's the same thing that's formed in us today as your people. Once we were alienated from you um, and we became a people that are woven together through the rich history of your church and the church today, um, every continent that it exists on, every culture that it's, it's exists in, um, we're united to each other. We are a people that are formed through the cross and through the gospel. And we thank you for that today. We give glory to you in your name, we pray. So, man, it's good to remember that Peter's, again, he's writing this letter um, and he's writing this to these churches that um, were under Roman influence. So that becomes significance. So, so Roman culture um, really would have been spread throughout um, the extent of the Roman Empire and would have been in some ways kind of pushed down upon the cultures that um, Rome had conquered. And so in that context, we have really probably Peter's writing to primarily non-Jewish converts to Christianity. And so um, they're coming from these places that their culture um, would have been opposed to the teachings of Jesus in some ways. And so they're doing all of this hard work to understand what it means to follow Jesus in light of the good news of who he is and, and what pieces of our culture do we need to extract. Um, it's no different for us. Like what pieces of culture do we need to reject in some ways? But then the beauty of that, because that's kind of the negative side of it, the beauty is of where do we engage culture? Where do we see those places of culture that God would call us to, to be actively um, moving towards restoration and redemption and, and beautifying for his return. And so it's no less true for them. And, and so they hadn't grown up steeped in Judaism. Um, they were primarily coming from pagan cultures and the reality to how they worshiped and who they worshiped as their gods were, I mean, as diverse as the people that this letter 
represents. And so now they're walking into this place where they're like, we're not, we're not Jewish converts. So, that, so they already to this thing, this new family that they found themselves united to, they already feel like a little bit of outsiders because they're like, man, it feels like this thing that happened in Jerusalem, like that's the center of it. So where do we now, we, did, we don't fit into our, our former culture, but we're trying to figure out how we fit into this new culture. Um, and so Peter's writing to them to that end. One of the things I love, now we've been pretty Peter heavy for the past year because Mark's gospel focuses a lot of attention on Peter. And so we looked a lot at Peter, especially as it closes out. And we looked at like the bad parts of Peter, the part of Peter that like you don't want to like air out your dirty laundry in public, his denials, his fickleness, right? And, and what I love about looking at Peter's letter, I mean, we're going to see some things like Peter wrestled through the implications as a Jewish um, as a Jewish person, like following Christ, what, what does it mean? What does this promise? Does it extend out to Gentiles? Can they become, are they becoming Jewish? Are they becoming Christians? Like, what does this all mean? And he's wrestling through that, but Peter's being transformed. Like, I love that what we see in Peter's letter is this transformation through the gospel of somebody who, who once denied Jesus, but now will die for Jesus. Somebody who's in, in, in some ways, like leaned into his cultural biases and said, like, I'm not sure that Gentiles can even become Christians. And now is like fighting for them in this letter in ways that are, are beautiful and impactful. So we get to see Peter's transformation as the gospel is forming him and, and, and changing him. And so um, as, we, as we walk through this, we want to keep in mind, like, like Peter's important and, and what is he really trying to do? So we want to funnel this down to like Peter's intention the whole time, not like our understandings through our biases of what Peter's trying to do. So, um, so there's all of these passages that Peter's going to reference. And one major reason that Peter's writing to them again is he's writing to his audience to remind them that although God had revealed himself, right? This, this God Yahweh had revealed himself to ethnic Israel centuries ago, um, these new converts from paganism, the, the recipients of this letter, um, they find themselves being harassed and slandered and maligned by their Greek and, and Roman neighbors for their faith in Christ, mostly because they begin to reject like those pieces of their culture that were antithetical to Jesus and the gospel. So in fact, as we're going to see, like we're going to get to chapter 4, the people that worked and lived with these new Jesus followers, like they're surprised, right? They, they, they don't have a category yet for, for who these people are. And some of them are like their friends and their family and their coworkers. And now they're, they're claiming that they're, they're something new. Like we're, we're following Jesus and, and we have this new family. And so they're just surprised how quickly these Jesus followers have abandoned their formal cultural practices and in some cases are actually speaking out against them, so they begin insulting them for following Jesus. It puts them in opposition to each other. So, so Peter's writing to encourage these disciples who are facing hostility because of their faith and obedience to Jesus, and he accomplished this in two particular ways in this text that we're looking at today. So it starts really the, the second part of the letter in, in 2.11, and it goes about to 4.10. And that is going to contain one thought for Peter that he's going to keep driving home to his readers. And it's going to stretch all the way through chapter four, almost to the end of the book or letter. Peter shows us, and here's what he's going to really dig into. He's going to show us and reveal to his readers what 
the purpose of suffering is. That, in fact, suffering provides a powerful witness to the world of the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. And he's going to point to Jesus' suffering, and he's going to say, follow Jesus in that. And so what he's getting to is when we live in the power of our new life in Christ and do good and righteous deeds, and even when we're mocked and opposed, we reveal Jesus to be real. We show that we have tasted and seen that, that the Lord is good. So, so good, in fact, that Jesus is not only worth dying for, but he's worth living for. And when we live in a joyful submission to Jesus and his lordship in our life, like Peter tells us, and we'll see it in, in verse, or chapter 3, verse 15, like we have these opportunities to bear witness for the hope that we have that is in us. So, so Peter teaches us that suffering has a way of focusing our hope on the return of Jesus. And Peter unapologetically throughout this later, that's, that's another point that he, that he points to, is like Jesus suffered, you will suffer, but Jesus is coming back and he will relieve that suffering. So he points his readers to this eschatological hope that Jesus will return again and set things right. Um, and that's really the main message of the last section that we're going to be like, so, so this is where we're heading, and it goes all the way um, through chapter 4 and to the end. So, so what we believe about the future, Peter is telling us, that begins to determine like how we engage and live in the culture and the world that we live in. And that when we consider like the, the, the glorious return of Jesus, which is something that like should, Peter is saying, be on your heart every day, be on your mouth every day, like on the lips of your mouth, you'd be crying out for Jesus's return and longing for that. And so when he returns, what we gain in him, um, we, we are empowered to live in love, even in the face of hostility. And, and as, we, as we've seen, like even if you go back to chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Peter's already given us like a preview of how important that is. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And so when Jesus returns, like everything that you're experiencing right now is going to make so much more sense and, and will be redeemed through Jesus' return. So the, the faith that, that holds on to Jesus in the end is what Peter's saying. Whatever life, whatever living in this world looks like, whatever it may throw at you, the faith that holds on to Jesus will be praised, accepted by Jesus, our King himself, when he returns in glory. So Jesus is going to bear witness to the tested genuineness of your faith that, that should be received as an encouragement to you today. Jesus is going to show back up and he's going to say, like, you stayed faithful, especially for those who are facing opposition and persecution for following Jesus. That's the easiest moments, right, where you're tempted to, it, it's actually a temptation Peter writes about to to recant, to, to not believe in Jesus. And so what we believe about the future, again, begins to determine the way that we live in the present. So, so that's how Peter encourages his readers in the second part of this letter. Suffering provides a unique way of deepening our faith, of bearing witness to the goodness of Jesus. How we live in this world matters. That will be a major theme as we move through the rest of this text. So um, Peter 
as he's encouraging these non-Jewish believers in, in the first part of his letter, he's reminding them, right? And, and what he drills down to them is, here's your new identity. This is who you are now as a follower of Jesus. So these converts from Christianity, again, they're, they're facing this severe hostility um, from their, their Greek and, the, and their Roman neighbors. And this is important. In, in first century Roman culture, like it was both a personal and sometimes even a civic offense to abandon any form of like religious cultural Roman practices. And so you have people that are Roman citizens that are pagans that are now worshiping Jesus and they've abandoned those pieces of their culture that again could not be um, redeemed and, and so they've rejected them. But that's actually a, like a personal and civic offense. And so, so following Jesus would cost these new disciples a lot. They were being betrayed. They were being falsely accused by their neighbors. They were being intimidated by their local governments, and they were being mistreated by their employers. Um, some newly converted women, as we'll see later on, um, were even being disparaged by their husbands and victimized by their husbands because of their new faith. So, so leaving the Roman cult could cost you your livelihood, your family, and sometimes even your life. And so, like, the stakes are high, for Peter's readers, and you can see how they're not as high for us, right? Like, none of that's true necessarily for us, so we've got to do that work to go, like, how do we extract those pieces from our experiences and try to understand what Peter's doing here? So, it was especially important for Gentile Christians to really understand, like, the weight of following Jesus, and not that they, like, everything that they stood to lose. Like, what does it mean? Like, what's the cost of discipleship here? Um, and it could not, whatever they stood to lose from following Jesus could not compare to what they have to gain in Christ. Because by faith in Jesus, they had become his heirs. His story had become their story. His family had now become their family. So in Jesus, they were no longer defined by their parentage or their performance or their popularity. They were identified with King Jesus and his kingdom. They had a new identity. Their hope was set on life everlasting with him. So in 1, 13 through 2, 10, Peter shows that from the scriptures, right, that, that non-Jewish believers have a new hope, a new family, a new identity as God's people. They are now the true Israel of God. And, and he does this by taking these six Old Testament images and applying them to Gentile believers. So we're going to focus on the last two today, but I briefly want to kind of highlight the first four. We've looked at them, but I kind of want to go back because it puts the whole picture together so that we can see how this develops throughout the letter. So Peter began by identifying the Gentiles to who he writes this letter to as chosen people living in exile. So like we hear that language and we just think of like, oh, that's something that Peter said. But what he's really doing is he's placing that in the place that it needs to be in the Old Testament for God's people, Israel. That's language that would be used of them. Peter is identifying non-Jewish believers in Jesus with the one nation among the peoples of earth upon whom God had set his affection, whom he had chosen to carry out his great mission. Peter wants us to see that those who were not a part of ethnic Israel have become a part of his family now through faith in Jesus. So the first image that Peter alludes to is the Exodus, right? And so just as Israel was called to leave their former life in Egypt and set their hope on God's deliverance to a land of promise, so is every follower of Jesus, called to turn away from the passions of our former ignorance and set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in the appearance of Jesus. 
And so then next, Peter says that just as God's people were called to Sinai to live in holiness throughout their sojourning, their traveling, their wandering, Jesus' followers are called to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Thirdly, while, while Israel was delivered at Passover from the angel of death by the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was spilt and sprinkled on their doorpost, Peter says that in, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that Gentiles have been delivered from eternal condemnation with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb that was without blemish or spot. So you see what he's doing to these readers. He's saying like, you're outside now of all of your familial relationships, but you've got this new identity, and it's the same identity that every Jewish follower of Jesus has too. And so God's got a plan here. And so um, we look at how this unfolds in, in kind of this last piece that, that God has poured out through Jesus on these Gentile believers, the, the new covenant promise that Jeremiah foretold of, that, that we've been given this new heart. And he says in, in chapter 123 that we've been born again through a living and abiding word of God. So in this new birth, we have been saved to love. And we keep on loving until the end because we've been rooted in a promise that is living and abiding. We have this hope that is alive because our hope is set on the one who will one day come again in glory. In other words, Peter is saying Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus have this new identity. We are a chosen people of God also because the promise was for all of creation. And so just as the Exodus and sojourning and, and Passover and a promised new covenant, we are part of Israel's story. They are a part of the church as well. The, the first encouragement, our identity as God's chosen people, is what makes the second encouragement here like even possible. So we can bear witness to Jesus in the midst of our suffering because our hope in him is sure. Like we belong to God, first and foremost. This, this background is going to help us make sense of the two Old Testament images that we're going to look at um, primarily in verses 4 through 10. So, so like living stones and holy priesthood, which is a weird way to encourage somebody, right? Like I encourage somebody, I'm like, man, keep your chin up, buddy. And he says, like, you're like a living stone and a holy priesthood. How is that encouraging, right? So, so not only have these readers been saved to love through this new birth, but they've been united to Jesus by faith. So look, I'm going to jump to verse four and just kind of look at this. Look at verse four and five here with me. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, put in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built upon a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter reminds us that Jesus First and foremost, like he walked the road of suffering and rejection. He understands all of the rejection that you'll ever face. He understands and has felt all of the suffering that you will ever feel, that he felt the sting of insults and harassment, and he faced opposition at every turn. He was rejected by his own people, but even in the face of this rejection, he would never waver in a sense of identity and mission. He didn't lash out he was reviled, but he did not revile in turn because he is the chosen and precious lamb of God. 
So in fact, Peter goes on in verse 6 and 7, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So rejected by his people, but, but he, the, rejected, the rejected stone right, has now become the foundation for everything, which is Jesus. So Jesus, Jesus' rejection brings into like hyper-focus what even the prophets talked about all throughout Scripture, that God's cornerstone would be rejected by those in authority, by his own people, and, and who he would become a source then of offense for them, and they would refuse to believe. However, for those who believe, for those who submit to Jesus, the rejected stone, that cornerstone, would, he would become the cornerstone. He would become the foundation of your very existence and life and faith and community and mission. And so where God's old covenant, um, like, it, not that it failed, but where it, it didn't, like where the people did not live into it, God establishes this new covenant with his people through Jesus. And, and that's how Peter can then say in verses 4 and 5 that, that as we come to him in faith, the living stone by faith, we too are living stones being built up by God as a spiritual house. So under the old covenant, God dwelt among his people where? Well, first in a tent or on a mountain, right? And then eventually we get to the temple being built. And so God gets like a permanent home in the people of Israel. It's the center of their city. It's the most important piece of architecture for them. And God dwells there. And only the high priest could enter into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And even that, even under very specific circumstances, could they? So in his earthly ministry, Jesus warned, right, that the temple, like we looked at this in Mark chapter 13, that eventually the temple is going to be destroyed. And what does he tell his readers? Like, don't, even, don't, don't stress that. Like, don't look to these old systems because, because this is the new temple. Like, I'm before you. And he warns that the temple is going to get torn down, right? And, and it won't be rebuilt. And, and rather than, like, him dwelling in a building constructed by, by men, he would inhabit this new temple, the church. Listen to how Paul describes this reality in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. He says, For we, or for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so like where we didn't, right? Through the spirit that now indwells us as followers of Jesus. We have access, direct access to the Father. Before you didn't, only the high priest did, and that was it. And they would go in and mediate and speak on your behalf. But now, because of the spirit, you have direct access to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the God by his spirit. So just take a moment and like let, let that soak in. Like if you've believed the gospel, if you've submitted to the gospel, if you've turned away from yourself to find refuge in King Jesus, then the promised Spirit of Jesus dwells in you. You are a living stone. God is building you up by his Spirit into the very temple in which God's Spirit now dwells. Guys, we're sitting in a building, right? And, and this building, by the way, is, it's made of stone. It's brick 
and mortar, right? Um, but listen, like, like you can see some of it right there. Like those stone, like there's no life in these walls. Like the, this building has been a car dealership. It's been a fireplace equipment and repair store. It's been a storage for life-side statues of celebrities like Hulk Hogan. All of that before it became our home. And it only becomes the church when the church is here. It only becomes living when the living stones, which is you, flesh and blood, made alive to Christ, are here. Right now, by his spirit. So, so, so we are learning of his love, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his faithfulness, of his steadfastness. We are tasting his goodness. We are the church. We are these living stones, not, not, not this. And by his spirit, we are learning to, to love one another. We're learning how to bear one another's weaknesses, how to support one another in, in distress, how to, how to comfort one another in, in grief, how to strengthen one another in adversity, how to see the beauty and goodness and glory of Jesus and all that he has done and made, how to walk in a world in such a way that our lives point to Jesus and he's writing to a group of people that their family was supposed to do that for them. Like family is supposed to help you in your weakness and distress and grief. And they've been kicked out of their family, but they've been grafted into this new family of, of strangers united in love through Christ. And so now like that's what we do for each other. Like we are this family that does those things for each other. It's an amazing thing, right? Like we get to be the place where good things happen to people who only experience bad things. We get to be a place where broken people find wholeness. We get to be a place where people feeling the pain of sorrow find comfort and hope, where weary people find the rest for their souls, where sinners find a savior. We get to be the place where Jesus gets lifted up and draws all people to himself. Come on. Like, that's good news. And, and as if it couldn't get any better. Not only are we living stones joined together by Christ, by faith, we're being built up by the Spirit into God's place of dwelling. We are called to mediate God's blessing to the world. It's no different than the call that Israel had placed on them. Be a blessing to the world. Look at the second image in verse 5. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So under the old covenant, priests were the worship leaders of their community. So think Austin, but constantly covered in animal blood, which I don't know, probably doesn't have any animal blood on them today, right? Which is a good thing. So if you were out killing animals, we'd have a very different discussion, right? So, but that's their responsibility. And it doesn't look like what we think, but their work was like difficult. It, it was weighty. Like think of all the like stuff involved with the challenges of the sacrificial system, but it was joyful work for them. Priests received and celebrated offerings and thanksgiving when harvests were collected, when, when babies were dedicated, when God's people gathered to remember important events in Israel's history. Like priests were at the center of that, like motivating people to worship gods. They wrote and performed songs of praise. They were entrusted with the privilege of studying and teaching God's word. They would travel throughout the tribes, instructing God's people from the scriptures. They had the joy of seeing others find hope and life 
in the God of Israel. But in the Old Covenant, out of the 12 unique and distinct tribes of Israel, only one, the tribe of Levi, was set apart to be priest. That's why this text is so stunning. It's stunning on multiple levels. One, he's claiming that you now, the readers that he's writing to, are, are a royal priesthood. So in a, in a nation that, that ethnically was so homogenized, Israel, like out of these 12 tribes, only one tribe could be a priest. Now he's saying everybody's a priest. But not only everybody in this nation, ethnic Israel, but even Gentiles are, are ro- a royal priesthood. So it's just stunning. Now, in Christ, all of God's people share this priestly identity. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for anyone who trusts in him to dwell in the presence of God, to have access to God. So according to Peter and God's word, you are a priest, right? So Peter unpacks this reality more in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in Exodus 19.6, God told Moses that the people of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And so that's like, well, how are they that, but only one tribe can be a priest? And here's what he means. He means that as an entire people, they were called to reflect the glory of Yahweh to the nations. They were to be a blessing to the nations. That was the mission that God gave them. In other words, as a people, they had one job. They were to function among the nations as the Levites did among the tribes of Israel. They were to draw people to worship. So as a nation, Israel was to become a beacon of hope and light in this dark world, showing all the nations that there was no God but Yahweh, inviting all people to taste and see that that he is good. Israel was called to mediate God's blessing to the world in the same way that the priesthood was called to mediate God's blessing to the 12 tribes. But because of their inability to keep God's law, they failed at this more than they succeeded. And it was always God's plan to establish a new covenant in Christ, he would succeed where his people had failed. And and this, Peter says in in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, is what transpired through the living and abiding word of Christ. We have been born again, saved from ourselves by God for others in the mystery of God's redemptive purposes. You have been made to fulfill the commission given to God's people, Israel. And as your lives as ambassadors for Jesus' sake, that is the spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God through Jesus. The church is called and commissioned and transformed and empowered to mediate God's blessings now to the nations. Church, we are God's chosen place of dwelling, joined to Christ as a living stone. His Spirit dwells within us, and we have been commissioned as a holy priesthood to share the best news in all of the world and to invite and welcome anyone who would believe and taste and see that the Lord is good. So real quick, just two takeaways. First, these proclamation is the most important thing, right? Is that we would live out this mission. And primary, like a lot of people have said this, but like um, the ultimate goal, like Austin referred to this earlier, 
is worship, right? And, 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 and I think John Piper said this, like mission exists because, because worship doesn't, right? And so we are called to be a people that would proclaim his excellencies and invite people to worship King Jesus, not just in a song, but by submitting their lives to his, his, his good and righteous authority. So, so wor- worship is the purpose of the people of God. We are called to that, to, to, as verse 9 says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We, we were, as verse 10 says, we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. We were once people who had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So that's just stunning to this ragtag group of rebels and dissidents are the ones whom Jesus, right? Now the creator and the Lord of the universe has chosen to be his family for his spirit dwells in them. And it's crazy. And, and what is the only fitting response to this reality? With hearts of profound gratitude and amazement, we proclaim his excellencies. I love how David kind of talks about this in Psalm 34. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his deliver or his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So I looked at that Psalm earlier and I was like, man, that's just so David, just like like almost like myopically being obsessed with the ex- proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. And it convicted me. I was like, man, what if I took out the word Lord there and, and, and I forced myself to say like, well, like what do I worship and how would I write this? And like, what do I talk about the most? Like, what would you hear me talking about this most? And I'm like, like, I will bless all of the bikes all the time. Like, is that what I worship? Like, like, is, is that more important? Because I talk about that a lot. And I'm looking at David saying, like, what, what he talks about the most in his life is King Jesus. And it forced me to kind of go like, man, let me gut this out of me. Like, what do I worship? What do I, what, what has my affections? What has my attentions? Is it, is it the Lord? Am I talking about him mostly? Uh, it was incredibly convicting to rewrite this um, and, and, and force myself to go like, where are my affections right now? Um, and, and how do I reorient them to, to Jesus? So here, that's what we need to get as we wrap this up, man. In light of our new hope, our new family, our new identity, how can we not, based on what David says, like if that's true for you, how can you not invite others to share in this? That's the first takeaway. takeaway. We proclaim, we open our mouth, we speak in worship King Jesus. The second takeaway comes from the verse that we haven't looked at yet. It's verses one through three. Um, so these verses like um, they contain the only command in this entire text. So Peter's Greek becomes challenging here to kind of smoothly translate. I think the ESV does like a pretty good job of making it less awkward in the English, but to show how one and two like kind of relate, I'm going to read it uh, the way the grammar is actually kind of structured. We'll see this. So he says to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted the Lord's good. So the 
English adjective spiritual is the Greek word logikon, um, which first sounds like an awesome transformer and is also from the noun logos or word, right? But the phrase long for pure wordy milk, it doesn't really like roll off the tongue, right? It kind of sounds gross too. Like, I don't know why, but like long, pure, wordy milk just sounds weird if you say it that way. But that's what's written. Like this morning I was getting coffee out at Starbucks and uh, my friend Steven, who manages this, I've known him for like 15 years, he manages every Starbucks that I go to for some reason. I ordered like a hot chocolate for my son and I ordered my typical Americano and he's like, do you want it creamy? And I just thought, that's gross, because I was picturing, like, what, what do you mean? Like, it's the same kind of, like, it just doesn't work here to say pure, wordy milk, right? So, so Peter uses the usual Greek adjective for spiritual in verse 5. He uses logikon here for a reason, right? So just think about what we've seen here this morning. Peter has shown us that we have a new hope, a new family, a new identity. He's walked us from the Red Sea to the resurrection, from the Passover to Pentecost, from Egypt to Easter, I got, I got to get some alliteration points for that. Come on. So he's shown us like all of God's promises given to Israel, like which are rich and fill their history as a people. Give them an identity. Give them unity. And he's saying those are given to all the nations as well. God's rich promises and blessings are for all the nations, from a guy who struggled with that reality, who had all sorts of questions about his own cultural biases, like, can these people really become, like, fully-fledged and formed Jesus followers? I don't know what that looks like. I thought the promise was only to Israel, but his transformation through the gospel now causes him to see the beauty of the promise. The only command in our entire text is right here, right? To long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the, the word is the way to wonder and worship. The word builds the muscle of our faith. It strengthens our resistance against sin. It fortifies our bones to like endure suffering. And if we've been saved to love, the way that we put all of that away, slander and malice and hypocrisy is through love is by drawing our nourishment from the word who is love. Therefore, long for the pure, like, pure milk of the word. Make it the staple of your diet because it is here where you taste and see that he is good. In the midst of harassment and opposition, Peter's encouraging his readers to, to, to crave the word, which is the living word, Jesus. So as we come to the table this morning to consider what Peter would have us contemplate. We long for the, the, the pure nourishment of the word. If indeed, like David said in Psalm 34, that we've tasted and seen that he is good. So we celebrate as we come to the table because we know that Jesus has delivered us finally and completely and fully. He's redeemed us He's given us a mission to proclaim his excellencies. So let's respond in worship of King Jesus. Let me pray, and we'll get to it. Um, you can.